Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, August 9th, The Swole Edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of NPR's Invisibilia, and in the New York studios, we have June Thomas, senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. So, how about the Beyonce cover? I'm, irri- I'm irritated by the um, Vogue Beyonce situation. Not by not by like anything like the choice of um, photographer. I think that's cool, but like her control that she's exerting over it. I think that's like I don't understand why everyone's applauding it. It just means you're going to get more and more boring shit that celebrities have controlled every bit. Come on, though. She said fupa. <laughs> she did say fupa, which I still don't quite understand the location. Well, okay, <laughs> this is this is something I've wondered about dating back to high school. Uh, I think the location is not what she's actually referring to. I right. think she's referring to her tummy pouch, but right. my understanding of a fupa is that it's a little lower. Yeah. I mean, that's what it sounds like, <laughs> just based on the description yeah. of the location. I was a little shocked. Was it the first black photographer? To shoot the cover, maybe? It, is that what it was? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That I just, I couldn't even believe we, we were celebrating that. It's like 2018. That was so weird. I well, know. there are a lot of creepy, <laughs> creeping men, who white men. Who still haven't done it? So obviously, I, th- I, I think mean, they should have waited a bit longer. The fashion world is so racist; it's unbelievable. But it can't be because on the bold type, there's there's <laughs> you know the black gay man is man is in charge of the fashion section. So clearly everything's fine. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Everything's and fine. it's also like to get a black photographer for the cover, you need Beyonce. It's <laughs> like the Beyonce right. has to be the one to usher it in. It's Although just, it's pathetic. All right, let's jump into our topics. Uh, first, we have Les Moonves, head of CBS, gets accused of some very serious sexual harassment in The New Yorker and doesn't yet get fired. What does that mean about the state of Me Too? Second, Sarah Jong, a young writer hired by The New York Times, lights up the alt-right for her white people suck tweets, and she doesn't get unhired. And then finally, Swole Jeff Bezos. We are always reading into the non-fashion of the tech boy geniuses, and suddenly they have fashion. What does it mean that they're all grown up? And then in our Slate Plus segment, we will discuss New York's search for female monuments. Is the hunt for a token female monument sexist? You put put your thumb on the uh, scales there, token. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's jump in. Uh, Les Moonves, a lengthy New Yorker story by, who else? Ronan Farrow documented decades of pretty serious sexual harassment charges against the CBS head. When that happened to Harvey Weinstein and a host of other people, they were out in a matter of days. But it's been a couple of weeks, maybe even more, and Moonves is still hanging on at CBS. We talk about why, what's going on specifically there, and then more broadly, what it says about the momentum and nature of the Me Too movement. Um, So maybe we should just start by giving a little sense of what the allegations against him were. June, you want to set us up a little bit? Sure. So 
Les Moonves, as you said, he's the chairman and CEO of the CBS Corporation. CBS is unusual uh, as a TV network in that it is booming. Uh, CBS always has the biggest audiences. Their shows are not considered like critical darlings. They're considered boring. Old people watch them. We're talking like NCIS, Big Bang Theory, you know, shows that I watch. Uh, (laughs) They don't really have the cool shows, but they have huge audiences. And Showtime and Simon & Schuster and CBS All Access are also under his control. He's very well uh, perceived uh, as a businessman. Um, And yeah, Ronan Farrow's piece chronicled six women who say that he sexually harassed them between the 1980s and the 2000s. We're talking things like forcible touching or kissing in business meetings. And importantly, I think, threats to derail their careers uh, because all of them said that he became cold or hostile when they rebuffed uh, his advances and their careers suffered as a result. Not just threats, like he took away contracts, right? That's what the piece said. Um, the the kind of the first story in uh, the New Yorker piece was about Ileana Douglas, who I think is also probably of the women who were named. Uh, a couple were kind of semi-pseudonymous. She's the most kind of... Th- She's the only one who I think is actually like identifiable by her name. We know who that is if you pay attention to television or to, to movies, actually, too. Um, and she, she had a very concrete example of he kind of, you know, Les Moonves was the one who tried to bring her into the CBS family. She's not just an actor, but also a writer. Uh, they, didn't, they looked at her series, didn't pick it up, but they cast her as a lead in a show. And then after she rebuffed his advances, and his advances in this case involved forcible kissing, um, you know, pretty clear. I think he pushed himself on top of her when he was the only person in the room with her on a kind of couch. Um, she, She then lost her job after he had kind of been really, I don't, I don't want to under, under describe it, so to speak, but like, he had been really paying extra close attention, which clearly like changed her vibe in the ca- with the cast. You know, all the other people on Faros spoke with other people on the cast of this show who said that she had been one kind of type of person, one kind of very involved, very sparkly, very you know exciting lead. And then after Moonves started paying close attention and started essentially with you know I don't know if you're right for this, um, she, and then she, she changed completely, and then she was just pulled from the show and. This deal that she'd that she'd received, they tried to not pay her. Eventually, she was kind of fobbed off with a miniseries that actually I think did pretty well. Uh, but it was she never worked for that network again. And I think the piece said that it's the only network that she really hasn't worked with. So all this happens. They're they're pretty. We can we can we can agree. It's like a series of allegations. They're pretty serious. They I mean at least in so far as they're alleged. They hew pretty closely to sexual harassment, you know, including what you said, payback. And yet he is still there at CBS. So so maybe we, be, before we do the broader Me Too, let's just tick through the reasons why he might still be at CBS that have talked that people have talked about. And some of them are depressing. Like one is the one you mentioned, June, that, that the difference is that he's incredibly successful right now, unlike Harvey Weinstein, who had had a history of successes, but no like real recent blockbuster. He is credited with with running the thing now. So that would suggest that if you're really successful, you're not you're not quite as vulnerable, like you can't be gotten rid of as quickly. What do you think of that reason? Well, it's not just, by the way, that he's really successful. It's that he is really successful at a time 
when um, CBS as a business entity is a little bit under threat. There's this whole sort of I got really into the this kind of theory of it, but there's this whole soap soap operatic drama with Sumner Redstone, who is sort of dying and has Summer Sumner Redstone, who owns the parent company of CBS. Um, he's dying ish. Uh, he has an iPad that he uses to communicate where the, um, the phrases that he replies to things with are yes, no, and fuck you. And, um, so Sherry Red. I think that's really actually useful if you're like a very powerful person. <laughs> or, or if you're not. Yes, no, and fuck you. The, the three moods. Let's pledge to only use those three options one day. Yeah. So Sherry Redstone is, uh, sort of running the show. Um, she is, maybe less highly thought of um, than Sumner. And she is trying to uh, re-merge CBS and Viacom, which investors don't like the idea of it. They don't like the idea of her as someone in charge. And so when it looked like uh, there was that that Les Moonves might be forced out because of these allegations. There was like a sharp uh, drop in the stock price. Um, and this, you know, I'm, I'm sort of interested in the timing of this article coming out, right, which is right before, I believe, an earnings call and right before, um, was it Upfronts, June? Or? Uh, no, it wasn't around Upfronts. But... Oh, my God, Noreen, you're like all into the... <laughs> I've been watching the God, Succession. Like, <laughs> conspiracy. <laughs> and I was going to say, you must be watching Succession. Yes, absolutely. It's like total conspiracy. Well, 100%. All right, but but so what? So what does that mean? So let's say there's all these reasons to keep him. You know that they're in the middle of a really heated battle over about control of the company. You know he is credited with most of its successes. There's a lot of people who are for business reasons on his side. Like mm-hmm. there's the Redstone. There's Team Redstone, Team Moon, Team Sherry, Team Less, whatever. Um, so there are people who, for completely other reasons, want him to stay. So how does that? You know how should we weigh that? How should we see that as outsiders and weigh that against what he's just been accused of doing? Well, I think the lesson here is that what we see as outsiders actually doesn't matter right now. And like maybe it's never mattered in this movement. Like uh, the Me Too movement has derived so much power from sort of cultural shaming and and from from the executives who make these decisions feeling some sense of guilt. And at CBS, there just appears to be a like, you know, we're just going to gird our loins and and like wait for this to pass. And that seems like it might actually work. Right. And so it seems no. like no, you don't think? No. I mean, June knows the TV business better than I do. I was just assuming he'll go eventually, that this is just kind of a temporary stalemate because nobody quite knows what to do and because they want this moment to pass. But but actually, you know, once they once the dust settles and they figure it all out, he's not going to stay. Am I, I wrong? I'm not I sure. just assume that. I'm not sure about that because there are a number of things here. One thing that's important is that Moonves is all, you know, as I said, it's not just that he really runs that company. And it's not really clear to me that there is an, you know, a successor uh, right there who will be able to step in and, and maintain that level of success. Uh, and also, it will cost the company a fortune to get rid of him. Uh, one of the pieces that I read talked about, you know, his contract is is very positive for him. He, you know, he earns, last year he earned just shy of $70 million. But um if he had to leave for anything other than a very narrow range of reasons, they would have to pay him $200 million. Now, that's a gigantic sum of money, even for a company like CBS. And I think there are, you know, the the nature of CBS, it is a very, um, 
you know, in terms of how it's perceived, um, it is perceived as the old people's network. And I think maybe there is less of a uh, of a commitment, maybe less of a there. Maybe the people feel less of a need to, you know, to to make a show of of handling this. Um, as you said, Noreen, there was an earnings call last week and uh, a lot of people were shocked that none of the analysts asked any questions about this mostly because of the succession issue like it doesn't not because they you know these analysts who are paid to write reports not they're not they're not journalists they not because they wanted to get scoop on the investigations you know CBS does have an official investigation it's like an outside i believe a law company is looking into this but because if moonves leaves that's really significant for the company and nobody asked about it which feels significant in some way i mean the guy's 68 he's going to leave at some point he's not going to work forever but i'm not sure that it's going to be all that soon well and he's also like not in front of the camera. So if you think about Matt Lauer, who people were, you know, sort of grossed out by the idea of seeing him just being, you know, America's dad every morning when we all knew this about him. Whereas Las Moonves, you know, if you if you pay attention to the business pages or if you work in Hollywood, you know his name. But if you're just watching CBS, you probably don't. So far, there's not any evidence that the writers or, um, you know, stars of CBS are too upset about it. In fact, um, the reason that I thought that there had been some kind of upfronts thing was that um, the creator of the or the the showrunner of the rebooted Murphy Brown, which is obviously set up as a feminist show and even has a Me Too episode coming this season, um, sort of has been the only woman at CBS, I believe, to really talk or the only sort of talent side person um, to really talk about it. And she, I believe, defended him and mm-hmm. and. Um, this has been sort of the pattern at CBS when there has been sexual harassment, um, when there have been se- sexual harassment allegations in recent months and years. Um, you know, Charlie Rose, it seemed like under real pressure from the network, a lot of high powered women at the network, some of the stars trotted out their defenses of Charlie. Like, that's not the Charlie I knew. So th- this just seems like, OK, where's the pressure going to come from? It would come from the culture at large, but the culture at large seems to have a little bit either moved on or is uninterested in this particular case. So just to clarify, that was at TCA, the Television Critics Association uh, meeting, where uh, the networks, most of the networks, and certainly the, the, the broadcast networks, do panels with their new shows. So that's where Diane English made that statement uh, when doing the panel for Murphy Brown. And then there are also executive sessions. And, you know, people who go to this event, I've been myself many times, um, you know, praised CBS for still putting on panels because sometimes when there's a something big like that, there's a ten- tendency to evade uh, questioning. Um, and another thing about Les Moonves, though, is that he's not maybe familiar to people, but his wife, Julie Chen, is. Uh, she's on Big Brother. She's on one of the daytime shows. Forgive me, I don't re- remember which one. And she, you know, needless to say, is stuck by him and kind of, uh, you know, very vociferously, as you would expect, perhaps. But you know, if there was, if there were murmurings around the edges, she might not. Uh, so yeah, that the, there is kind of a public face uh, of of Moonves' defense. Oh my God, this is so depressing. You guys are depressing me. I had not been thinking about it this way. This is really depressing. I mean, the way you guys are describing it, it's like it's just we're tired. It's exhausting. And well, I don't know. Okay, let me put this by you. So there's one way of seeing the the situation that you guys described is either a you know, we're just tired of these sexual harassment stories, blah, 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 business is business. 
that's depressing, or B, like, we're just now moved to the phase where Me Too is not quite a revolution. Like, you don't just get thrown, you know, you don't get pushed off the cliff. You at least have to weigh the accusations against the person. You have to hire uh, whatever they hired. You know, they hired one of those investigative committees. You've got to weigh it against other business interests. Like, it just becomes one among many other factors that you consider about a person, which is, you know, also depressing, but less depressing than A. Well, I don't know if it is. I mean, it's because with Moonves, you know, yes, there's the accusations against him, which are serious and numerous and over a long period, and which he kind of cops to, to a certain extent. Like with Ileana Douglas, he said, yes, I did try to kiss her. I did kiss her. Um, and, you know, that can sound a little, you know, charming. Well, another actress who didn't give her name, but sounds, you know, from the description in the New Yorker piece of someone who we probably could, could figure, figure out who yeah. it is if we cared to, um, you know, she, the way she described this kiss is like thrusting his tongue down her throat in a, you know, in a repulsive way. Uh, but there are, he's since he's responsible for CBS, there are all these other kind of things that have happened at CBS, a big business, which kind of redound to him. So the Charlie Rose, you know, most of that stuff happened at CBS. Uh, the, you know, there's there've been the guy who runs, who's the showrunner for NCIS New Orleans has had numerous accusations against him. Like, it's not just, you know, there's more accusations at 60 Minutes. Like, it's not just what he has done. It's also other people that he's in charge of. And at the same time, it's a business. Um, I don't. I say that not because I think it's okay, but because you know it. It doesn't really surprise me that you kind of defend the guy, or not necessarily defend him, but just kind of really, you know, kind of keep your hand on him until you're forced to let go, uh, because the downside is mighty. You know, the downside of letting him go is huge, and the downside of keeping him is real but also possibly less. So it's kind of a business decision in a way. No, I mean, that just suggests we have to work harder. Like, it shouldn't be like that. No, oh, I'm not saying it should, should be, be like that. That's incredible. But I think that is how it I is. I mean, it's like, okay, so Stephen Colbert said, you know, he was able to recognize, like, I owe a lot to this man. He, we can recognize the complexity of people while still saying accountability is important and this guy has essentially committed a crime and created a horrible work environment. And so, you know... Great that there are some good things about you, but every criminal in prison also has lovely things about them and loves their mom. So well, here's the thing. Bye. Here's the thing, though. I'm not really clear that he has committed a crime, like in the sense of like if these women had, would they have grounds to? to yeah, Eliana uh, Douglas had a contract, right? And he was, he, mm. you know, so that would be workplace sexual Although, harassment. Yeah, yeah. Although I, in I'm, the end, it did kind of work out. I mean, again, and just to be clear, I'm not saying this is okay. It just, I'm just saying this is, I think, what's going on. And, and is it terrible? It is. But at the same time, like, I, I just think we should be realistic about the way the world works. Well, so, so okay, so thinking about Wait, this no, is like... Me too in immaturity. 
like so what's so you say Hannah okay we have to work harder what does that mean because it can't stay at a fever pitch forever right like I think this is actually an interesting test case of that this is a big deal this is someone who set the the culture for a whole um, network that seems to be like a viper's nest and has himself committed these you know allegedly committed these acts and we're kind of like oh yeah well that's just some of them are tough so so like what is the way for this to continue being a, a like relevant cultural force without being like just pure scolding and without it being like only when it's someone who like liberals care about a ton like like Jeffrey Tambor you know because he's on that because it's on a show where it seems so extra hypocritical like how does how does it become become more than just like a a spasm and become like something that actually has staying power. How about this with real accountability? So do I have a problem with them setting up a commission, actually investigating these crimes, doing an independent investigation, being fully accountable, investigating their culture and then coming up with a decision like it doesn't they don't have to throw them off the cliff immediately. It doesn't have to be three days for me to feel like the movement is actually having an impact. But somebody but it's just accountability, like ac- accountability should be real and but sustainable. It, but like at you CBS, said. for instance, they theoretically have an, an investigation into Charlie. Rose, that's still open. It seems to like not have had any work done on it. Like when you say, you know, there needs to be an internal investigation, that means that we have to, you know, that the that the institutions themselves have to be sort of like honest actors in that. Well, it, they inst- it, um, in in the in the June communist. Uh, <laughs> view of the world in corporate institutions are never honest actors they're actor they're self-interested actors and that's fine so then it's up to the public and i think television companies are definitely beholden to the pump public to 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 make sure that there's some cost for not doing the right thing how about we'll ask you this listeners would you ever consider if you have a favorite cbs or showtime show would you consider boycotting that show stopping watching the show if this investigation against moonves went nowhere and and did nothing, and they just tried to cover it up. Send us your answers at thewaves at slate.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Before we get into our next topic, we have an announcement. We're doing our summer call in show, one of my favorite shows of the year. You can call in and leave us questions. You can leave us is it sexist questions about situations in your life that you're not sure if they're sexist or not, or really just any question question that you have for us. We would love to hear it. The number is 646-907-9859. That's the call-in show at 646-907-9859. And we'll also put the number on our show page. Uh, June, you also have an announcement. I do. I have two, actually. The first is I want to let people know that we are finally going to have an Outward podcast. Outward, of course, being Slate's LGBTQ section. It is going to be monthly. It is going to be amazing. And it begins on Wednesday, August 15th. Uh, We have Christina Cotterucci, known to all Waves listeners, Brian Lauder, the editor of Outward These Days, and also Brandon Tensley of New America. 
And the f- it's going to be kind of a themed show. And the first theme is roots. That is to say, queer roots, the first time that we notice that we might just have a slightly different interest. Uh, and we'll also have a segment about uh, a straight studies segment about ask- asking if straight and cisgender people also have roots. And the second thing I want to mention is Slate Day, which is a live podcast experience produced in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival. Several of our politically minded shows will be there. Political Gabfest, Trumpcast, Amicus, El Gabfest en Español and The Gist. Attendees will experience their favorite political podcast live and there'll be a chance to mingle with the hosts and other fans at a cocktail party and there'll even be exclusive Slate Day merchandise. Uh, It'll take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas on Saturday, September 29th in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's an intimate venue with limited seating. So get your seats today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. And if you want to make a weekend of it, the Texas Tribune is offering $100 off festival badges to Slate Day ticket holders. And there'll be a link on the event page to learn more about the festival. So slate.com slash live. Okay, let's move on to our second topic, Sarah Jong. She's a young tech writer who was recently named by The New York Times as the newest member of its editorial board. After the after the announcement, the conservative alt-righty writers dredged up old tweets of her making fun of white men. Well, no, making fun of white people. So things like white men are bullshit, dumbass fucking white people marking up the Internet with their opinions like dogs pissing on fire hydrants. Um, so they, they dredged up some pretty good stuff there. And then Jong responded that the Internet is really sexist and there's lots of trolls always, you know, trolling on her. And so this is just her hitting back. So what do we think about this? Is this a reasonable way to respond to Internet sexism? And then just more generally, how did this whole thing unfold? So maybe we should just start with some of her tweets. Like, let's just characterize her tweets, the sort of cancel white people. And then, oh, man, how much I enjoy being cruel to old white men. And then there's the fuck white women, LOL. What did you how did you guys when you read those tweets, did they seem familiar to you? Like, like, like stuff people say stuff you read on Twitter? Like, how did what box did you put them in in your heads? They definitely seem familiar to me. So so we should also say that that Sarah Jong said, you know, this is something I was doing to fight back at the trolls. She didn't sort of like say, and I'm proud of it. She sort of said, you know, this was like a reaction and it's not something I do. Like she she um, didn't disown it, but she also didn't say like, I still stand by it kind of thing. Well, she the New York Times, you know, did a kind of patronizing, um, you know, uh, tisk tisk she shouldn't have said that they, they kind of contained it like they didn't they've had a couple of instances in the past where they've had to fire people when this happened they didn't do that nor did they condone what she did and say it was okay and say yes she was just responding to sexism they just kind of contained it sure i would say okay so i would say that this this type of tweet that she's doing is actually pretty common um uh it's obviously meant to be both ironic and barbed right like like no. Uh, yes. How is it? How? Where's the irony? I don't get. I don't see any irony. Why is it ironic? Well, lol, is it ironic? Lol is could... the international sign of irony. First of all, like it's 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 a sort of unstable mix of um, irony and you know an actual anger. But yeah, of course, this is what's so puzzling to me, Anna. You and Andrew Sullivan, you're Gen X. You're supposed to understand irony. <laughs> this, is, this is like 
Um, no, no, I get, I get, I see what you mean. It's just like not real. It's like we say it and we don't, we say it, we mean it and we don't mean it at the same time. She's, I, she's not trying to like start a race march against white people, which is what Andrew Sullivan, my colleague, seemed to think in his column. I think what she was doing, um, you know, is something that rubs me the wrong way when I see it on the internet, but it's meant to rub me the wrong way, right? Like, for instance, the, like, fuck white women lol tweet, I'm pretty sure was probably in reaction. It was tweeted in 2016. I think it was in reaction to white women voting overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Um, Some of her specific tweets about uh, white people, you know, sort of needing to go underground like goblins or something because their skin couldn't be exposed to the sun was actually um, someone did the sort of forensics on it. And it was actually in reaction to an Andrew Sullivan um, column about like sort of defending Charles Murray and the bell curve and and sort of um, his theories of race and IQ. Um, so I think what people like Sarah Jong are doing is they are grouping white people together and insulting them. And my first reaction as a white person reading it is like, why are you grouping me together with everyone like that? That's unfair. I'm an individual. And then, of course, that's the point, because that's what they're showing is like what it feels like to be, you know, stereotyped as like, you know, in her case, as an Asian woman. Right. Like like it feels bad. It feels like. Uh, dehumanizing, right? So, so it's not like a polite thing. I don't think her Twitter is particularly amusing or original, but uh, that's what she's doing. And you know, there is it. Does it have the same valence to say like "fuck white people" as it does to say "fuck person of a different class" that might or a person of a different race that's probably more oppressed is more oppressed in America? Like it doesn't. So, I think it like I give it not high points for style for sure, and I. Don't think it's like a great place for the you know discourse to be going, but uh, I think people are sort of missing the point. Yeah, I didn't think the Andrew Sullivan. It's not racism. I mean, that's just a that's that's a, like a specious, unconvincing argument that this is a form of racism. That's not what racism is. Like you can't. It doesn't work. That you can't. There's no. You can't just reverse racism and say now this is racist against white people. That's not convincing. Um, I was more thinking of the style of it. That's mm-hmm. where my mind went. Like, well, first of all, like it. It is like if you think of it as a group chat, you wouldn't blink, right? Like it's if it's if it's like a group because she was saying, oh, this is how people on Asian Twitter talk to each other. Um, Although this is like how people on Twitter talk to each other. So I'm not sure it's just specific Asian Twitter. I've seen white people do this plenty too um although it's um, so white people yeah that's actually like performatively really annoying i think when when uh white people try to be like i'm not like the other ones because i can do the irony thing it it just (laughs) that bugs me but you have that thought sometimes like that's just a thought that has entered our heads like stupid white people like there is a thing that's in the category of stupid white people which we call stupid white people even though we are white people Right. And Don't that's, you think? But that's because these are people who, like, um, are are too sort of polite to say, like, screw rednecks. But that's what they're actually thinking in their souls. Like, there is there's a classist thing that's happening. There's a there's a like. There's I a, don't think so. I think that about like Gwyneth Paltrow. Like, oh, to okay. me, that's some white people shit. Like, I don't think about it as like a redneck thing. In fact, <laughs> the, no. Well, so when I think about like the Gwyneth Paltrow's, it's more like screw rich people. But I suppose it's 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 it just depends what you want to label. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I guess like white people has become an insult of a certain kind. And maybe it means different things to different ones of us. But we don't exactly think of it as all white people. But stylistically, I was more thinking about the nature 
Twitter. Uh, so this would be something in a group chat, except that, like, if you're a certain age, group chat and Twitter are not that different, right? Like, to me, it's public. So I would be like a little I am trained to be like a little bit mindful of of what I put. I wouldn't put the same thing on Twitter as I would put in a like a group text with my friends. But this but but this but but here the boundaries of that are gone. So it's the well, same. That's, that's one of the I mean some one of the critiques of of this whole conversation is that this is generational. Um that young people have a just a have no have no sense of boundaries um in terms of, you know, public and private and all of that stuff. And I think that is one of the the questions here because I think we're all aware of in-group, the way we talk in-group and the way we talk in, a, in an open space. Uh, but, you know, and we talk all the time about gay Twitter, black Twitter, uh, writer Twitter, baseball Twitter, whatever. But there, those things don't actually exist. It's just Twitter. Like, it's not Slack where you can have a conversation just in your channel or just... Uh, with a certain group, it's going to everyone, and so the, I think there is uh, a. It's it's. I think these days it's harder and harder to remember when you are when you have that freedom to be expressing yourself to your friends or to or to know that you're going to be perceived in the way that you intended something, and I I think especially when for writers and other people who are kind of whether explicitly or not expected or encouraged to have a certain profile, not necessarily by their employers, but just knowing that if you have a big Twitter following, that is, you know, that's something that is desirable to employers or to people who are going to hire for a freelance piece, that there's there's so many kind of contrasting motivations and perverse incentives that it's it's not just so easy as just don't do this in a public space. Right. I mean, prob- like we should be clear that like sh- probably one of the things that, that brought her to the New York Times' attention was her Twitter following, which she probably in part gained by these sort of like, you know, uh, au courant jokes. Right. And it's a weird kind of double bind. You know, she it, it is just a plain fact that as a woman of color, she um, especially it, writing about tech. Yeah, especially writing about tech. There is like, no matter how much someone like, um, you know, I can, hate to keep keep picking on my colleague, but he, in in this column he wrote for um, New York's website, he he wrote that you know he he's he's convinced that a place like the New York Times hires only on the basis of like you know race and sex, which is just not true. Um, you know, places are certainly making an effort, but you, you have a tougher hill to climb if you are a woman of color writing about tech. And, uh, you know, she, she might not have gotten the attention if she didn't have the Twitter following. I mean, it's a, it's a weird kind of a double bind. So what do we think? So given that, like, given all the pressures that you described and the, the sort of, you know, the kind of gen- the generational reflex, like, should we to me i was the question i was having in my mind is like so there's the new york times editorial page i think of it as like staid and somber and whatever they hire somebody maybe this is good like maybe it's just good that we get used to the collapse of language and public and private and and we don't have such like a gatekeeper mentality of like what kinds of sort of attitudes and language need to populate the New York Times editorial page and what kind need to populate Twitter because that's just the way people talk and express their opinions. Except now. I, I think we need to remember that when 
The New York Times asked Sarah Jung to be on their editorial board. Did the fact that she has an active Twitter following affect it? Probably. But that's not why she was hired. The fact is that she... When she, you know, she's a graduate of Berkeley and Harvard Law School. Like they're the part of the like. That's well, that's one reason to me why these tweets are clearly performative. That's not how she actually writes. That's there's a a lot of like taking on a personality with those tweets. That's clear to me. It's when she writes pieces, that's not the tone that she takes. Um, you know, it's the. And she writes about tech. Exactly. That's, I feel like you would might think that she was writing op-eds about race, uh, given the, the tenor of the conversation surrounding this. And she's very much, um, you know, again, she's a law school graduate. She often writes around the kind of the, you know, the borders of tech and law. And that is so, you know, that's where you need a lot of emphasis and expertise right now. Um, you know, it's like, I don't want to you know, be condescending and like, oh, she's just a, you know, a young thing who doesn't like she's a extraordinarily uh, high achieving 30 year old Berkeley and Harvard Law School graduate. Like it's fine for her to be on the New York Times editorial board. I mean, right. Having said all that, do we think it's a productive sort of line of um, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what you want to call it, like direct action or like like to, to, to sort of use to wield the term straight white man as an insult. Right. Or just like white people as an insult, which is happening more and more. Do we like where do we think this is going to go? Like, is it I mean, I know this is a bigger, bigger sort of argument that people are having and like three white ladies sitting back and opining on it might not be what people want to hear. But I am interested in this. It's been happening for a while. Um, I, you know, I. I defend it for the reasons I laid out earlier, um, but you know I'm not sure that it's like um, if you if you it depends if it depends if you want to sort of like win people over or like confront people with their biases, right? And um, and it's not necessarily an either order situation. But uh, what do you guys think of this trend? I mean, in certain in, it like we are who we are. We when we see these things, we you know respond to them a certain way. Uh, I, you know, I think in general, I perceive of, I I think for the most part, I understand what's being referred to because another thing, you know, that everybody has said, you lose the context when you go back to, you know, two, three-year-old tweets. Like, I, you know, I think if I come across them at the time, I know what it's responding to. I think I take it in the way that it is intended, I think. But I know that other people won't. So it's, I think it's very difficult to, um, to you know, everybody perceives things differently. I think it's very difficult to to kind of police. Yeah, I think that th- this is a really interesting question. I think it's okay if temporary. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like I to think move like the needle. Temp- yeah. yeah, to move the needle um, for unconscious bias reasons. I think, you know, um, insofar as it shames particular individuals, like I've watched, like I have young friends of mine who go to youth training camp in which the way they like divide into racial groups and what they say about the white, it's pa- it's painful when it's enacted on a kind of individual level. Um, but, on a, but on a group level, I think it's not a bad thing to have a sort of his little historical period when people are allowed to make 
fun of white people in that way. <laughs> um, I suppose if it was like permanent, it would become disturbing, you know, um, because why? It's like it's like hateful the way anything is hateful. Um, but but if it's sort of semi ironic and temporary, then probably necessary. I'm OK with it. Um, can I chime in for a second? <laughs> sure. Um, I think when I think about this, I think about like, can a person of color or marginalized group be racist? Right. And I think that I always land on no, because there is no institutional harm that's going to come from being prejudiced towards a white person. No, that's what I said about Andrew's argument. You can't really be that's not that's not racism. So like, does this cause harm like by her making these statements? I think it's harmful because it's it's uh, just it, it, it like it's a kind of language that you don't want around forever. Like, fuck this person is not like fuck this group of people like just as a way of talking is kind of like Trumpy. Right. And, yeah. and you know, she was responding to these trolls like mm-hmm. and I don't I don't have a Twitter feed where I get trolled all the time, but I know people who do and it really weighs on you. And so I understand the human impulse to respond mm-hmm. in kind. But at the risk of sounding like William Bennett, the, the like coarsening of the discourse is is like not great at the moment. And um, but isn't that the argument for like Democrats needs to stop being so like, you know, compla- not complacent. That's not the right word. Sure, but- that's sure. That's definitely the argument. And that's definitely the argument that's winning. And I don't think it's I, and I'm not against it. I just think like like Hannah says, if you if you think about the end game of this, it is just people sort of throwing feces at each other. Yeah. And, you know, let the white girl bring up Dr. King. You know, <laughs> Dr. King didn't fight back, like, you know, passive resistance and all of but that. But then like, when he was trying to, he got assassinated. Exactly. Exactly. Sorry, not to. I'm, no, yeah. but ex- <laughs> but that's exactly right. Like, but I, but, no, but Verilyn makes a good point. Like, oh, I was yeah. listening. I got so depressed listening to Donald Trump's speech in Ohio where he was like, little Danny. It was like, seriously, know, like, seriously, my son is, my little son is way more sophisticated than that. Like, how do you respond to that crap? I know. Like, what are you supposed to do? Donald Trump has a little dick. Like, really, what would you say in kind to such? When they go things? low, you bring Robert <laughs> Mueller. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, but, right, but, but I, uh, I, I get Verlin's point. No, like, absolutely. Maybe just and say fuck you back is like a reasonable thing to do in that moment. Yeah. You know? and, 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 and I just wonder, like, if if the if she had said no white people, could you just like think about how like that? Nobody would read that. No, that wouldn't <laughs> get her followers like that's not. That's not effective. You know, the kind of language that she used, which, again, I do not for one minute believe is her natural voice. Like she didn't you don't get into Harvard Law School by by that being your. Right. Yeah, and but don't Twitter's th- fun. Like people exactly, talk like exactly, that on Twitter because exactly, it's fun and everybody exactly, likes it, which is exactly. why I like have a distance from Twitter. Exactly. It's just exactly. boring. You're just like, fuck this, fuck that. And exactly. then everybody's exactly. loves it. Well, you know exactly. why it's not boring? You know why people like Donald Trump's insults is they're like very specific and they get at specific qualities people. Like white people is actually kind of a generic insult. Like she was doing a generic Twitter joke. Like the weird, um, you know, white people should be underground, like was actually the best of all of them because it was kind of specific and strange. Like I feel like that's maybe the way to, to sort of take back the discourse mm-hmm. is to get funnier and mm-hmm. like Whittier. Yeah, if, yeah. You're, if you're gonna like play in the mud, yeah. like play in the mud yeah. a little more cleverly. Yeah. yeah, then like fuck white people and Danny Parrot, Danny's little Danny or whatever. Ugh. It's just 
He's so awful. <sighs> the lack of imagination. All right. So um, especially to our non-white listeners, if you uh, want to tell us what you think of the whole uh, fuck white people way that people talk, please email us at thewavesatslate.com or tweet us. All right. So our next topic, swole. Jeff Bezos. I'm just going to I just am telling you guys that I love the word swole and I'm going <laughs> to say it as many times as I can in this segment. I've swole. been using it like completely wrong all week just so that I can say it a lot of different times. <laughs> so what it's about is that Amazon head Jeff Bezos in the last year has totally switched up his look. If you you know look up pictures, it's remarkable. He's muscled up, bomber jacket, cowboy boots. Someone actually compared him to Pitbull which is yes. amazing mm-hmm. if you think about the old pictures of Jeff Bezos. Anyway, um, and then Mark Zuckerberg recently testified on the Hill wearing a super boring suit. Um, it was boring, but it nonetheless resembled somebody who is of age. So what does it mean that these boy geniuses have all grown up? Noreen, I bet you've spent a lot of time, just because I know you, looking at pictures. Um, <laughs> What do you think of the tech uniform? What are you into it? What do you think? Well, about it? so we should we should uh, clarify. So the tech uniform is a little bit old news, right? It's like I wear t-shirts and uh, you know, sort of heathered, th- heathered, right? And there's right. a tendency toward uniforming. Like it, there's a little bit of variation in the uniform, but typically these kind of guys uh, have one thing that they wear every day. But what I'm interested in here is the like, um, you know you know first you get the money then you get the muscles kind of move that's happening because because uh okay so jeff bezos in the 90s was like your you know dockers and balding and just like kind of mild-mannered smart guy with an idea and then he obviously i mean he probably got a personal trainer a long time ago but sometime in the last two years he said no no no, i want the muscles um and mark zuckerberg (laughs) has obviously worked out with a trainer too there's a whole tim cook he's swole Right. Tim Cook. Um, Tim Cook is very modest in his dress. He doesn't like to show off his muscles in the like manner of Bruce Willis slash Jeff Bezos. Um, but he, you know, he obviously like he's into rock climbing and stuff. People have like spent some time like looking at his like forearm veins to try to mm-hmm. determine just how muscled he is. Um, there is, you know, and and it's not it's not just in tech, you know, like Drake famously bulked up after um, sort of he reached next level as a rapper. There is this thing where where like. It's so it's almost too simple, right? It's like, ooh, now I'm powerful. I want to look powerful. It's like I want it to be more complicated than that, but it just seems to be that. I love it. I love it because it's <laughs> so basic that it like removes all the mystique of the boy genius. Like I always felt as a woman completely <laughs> oppressed by this idea that these like little wispy nothings just <laughs> were glowing with some genius that no woman could possibly ever capture or penetrate or come anywhere near now they're just totally basic they're just like (laughs) losers they just spend their time in the gym and like wear a bomber jacket it just has no mystique at all it's just basic that's how i feel about Uh, my my main level of curiosity so i worked at microsoft uh you know i haven't for 13 years but during that time and i was on the you know the main campus or a little bit on the Anyway, I worked in, you know, in Redmond uh, on the Microsoft campus and there was definitely a uniform which was, you know, uh, polo shirts and khakis. And a friend of mine who I actually knew before Microsoft, uh, she also worked there and she had to go to a conference. And she, I, I think she may have cried. Certainly she was in despair when she was issued with her logo polo shirts and told <laughs> to match it with 
with khakis, which she didn't have and she didn't want to go and buy. And it because she was going to represent the company. And so she was literally issued a uniform and it was a uniform that was so fug that it just absolutely devastated her. And so if the uniform has become a little less fug, I mean, that's got to be, I hear what you're saying, uh, um, Hannah, you know, that the, with the kind of the, the veil is lifted and we see that the Wizard of Oz is just a, whatever he is, but a tiny little gremlin. But at least people don't have to wear the logo shirts and khakis anymore, maybe, right? <laughs> but yeah, there is, there has been a, I mean, the culture at large is sort of more interested, at least the the sort of, you know, um, upper crusty culture of America is so much more interested in um, physical wellness than it was Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Right. Discipline and discipline. There was this really interesting article in The New York Times over the weekend about the bro podcast. Did you guys read that? The sort of Joe Rogan MMA podcast that's also like a lifestyle and the Tim Ferriss like and um, I, I sort of think of. Uh, what Jeff Bezos has done as being like the personification of that. And I doubt he listens to Joe Rogan. He might very well listen to Tim Ferriss, although I think he's too busy for that. But this sort of idea that like you are going to maximize your life and it's not just like winning the business thing. It's like you are going to be, you know, this physical specimen. I mean, that's sort of and 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 in a weird way, this fits in with the like all the tech billionaires who want to like live forever. I mean, Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. I don't know that he's on the live forever train, but he's on the let's go to space train. Like mm-hmm. half of his leather jackets are, are um, you know, have the insignia of his um, space company. So it's it might not just be ornamental. It might be this idea of like total mastery over the the human self. But isn't that just women do with wellness? I mean, it's that exhausting all these other pursuits that you have to do outside of your work. So we used to think these guys were, you know, the line on them used to be that they were just disembodied brains Mm -hmm. and like they didn't have fashion because all they were doing was thinking great thoughts and changing the world. But if they have to worry about all this other bullshit like the rest of us, then that's great. (laughs) That's some justice in that. Well, they're not judged for it. They're like celebrated for it. But, you know, if a if a female CEO like lost, you know, let's say 15 pounds and got Michelle Obama arms, would she be celebrated for it? Maybe she would actually, but like they're also... But it's like Gwyneth Paltrow. It's not exactly just losing weight and looking good. It's like you said, there's a sort of virtue and an ambition Mm -hmm. to the whole project of maximizing your life. It's much more goop than it is just, you know, Weight Watchers. I, I, before we leave the subject of swole Texex, let's also not Let's also take a moment to pause and talk about another uh, peacock who's been in the news recently, uh, Paul Manafort, mm-hmm. whose trial is happening this week. We keep hearing not so much actually about the specifics of the trial, but about 10 times more about the ridiculous clothes that he spent gazillions of dollars on. I mean, I think literally almost a million dollars he spent on weird clothes like ostrich jackets and ostrich vests and just these weird things like $900 ties. Yeah. Like what's that about? Because it, you know, you know, that old phrase, um, you know, think British dress or <laughs> sorry, think Yiddish dress British. Like <laughs> for him, it's like buy peacock dress super fucking boring well he just got it wrong right like like so okay so everyone's celebrating bezos because he like i I mean the style is not my cup of tea Mm -hmm. in particular but he's definitely doing a certain kind of masculine look and he obviously has a stylist that he's working with and manafort might have had a stylist but i don't know if it was (laughs) like if it was someone who was you know working on a high commission and was just saw a fool coming a mile away but he 
like first of all got the look wrong second of all didn't do the like bulk up thing that's mm-hmm. what that's what people are responding to they're responding to these tech guys looking good in their clothes rather than just buying them Manafort sort of has the old style like 80s I'm just gonna buy a really nice like you know designer. python jacket right right it's this like cheesy conspicuous consumption thing with and he's missed the like if you if you're just you know evaluating him on the sheer style points you know he's missed he's missed the like underlying like fix the architecture thing that's happening and he also like obviously just like you know i mean jeff Bezos waited until he was what the richest man in in um, the world, in the world to to really get into this. Whereas Manafort like is one of those people who gets a paycheck, spends a paycheck, gets a paycheck, spends a paycheck. Like there's no there's no like swagger to it. Oh yeah, that's it's a lack of swagger because he's like the other thing is, excuse me, other than when uh, Zuck has to show up in Congress and he puts on the suit, he's committed to the clothes that he's committed to. Whereas Manafort apparently spends gigantic money on ostrich and python and these, you know, endangered clothing items. But then he's always <coughs> seen in, you know, an ill-fitting suit that probably costs a ton of money but doesn't look particularly good. Like, dude, if you got the ostrich, wear the ostrich. Yeah, that's like, that speaks to some kind of emotional buying yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, So He's got so, closets stuffed. Right, so peacocks, yes, ostriches, no, if we're, mm-hmm. if we're talking birds and men. Mm. All right, listeners, why don't you choose for us a male fashion icon? If you had to choose the guy whose swagger you most admire, tell us who it is. You can tweet at us or send it to us at thewaves@slate.com. Okay, recommendations. June, you first. So I'm going to recommend something that I that is at this point quite old, but that I just finally got around to listening to. And I am so blown away. It is so amazing. I'm sure many people have already listened, but the 11-part podcast, In the Dark, uh, the second series about the complete miscarriage of justice against Curtis Flowers and the human garbage of a DA who tried Curtis Flowers for a grotesque multiple murder six times and five times the conviction has been thrown out because of misconduct and yet he has not suffered any negative consequences keeps uh, bringing another trial Curtis Flowers has been on death row for 21 years it is just an amazing piece of journalism in part because it is so thorough but also so restrained like I would have I would not been able to keep the the tone out of my voice in a way that like this is a podcast of just amazing journalism. It's by APM Reports and they really keep it like very measured, very calm. But my God, they got evidence and it is just an amazing piece of audio. It is. It's really great. All right. I have two recommendations. One is going to be interesting to absolutely no one listening to this podcast, (laughs) nor to the two of you. And the other one's just a regular old novel that you could read. Um, So uh, I my son has been trying to get me to play video games with him forever. And so I usually just try one and then I just can't get my head around it. But I finally found a video game (laughs) that I just love. It's called Thumper. Uh, It's described in the literature as rhythmic violence. Um, (laughs) I think it was designed. (laughs) Hashtag feminism. (laughs) Exactly. It's really amazing. He plays these music beat games where you have to like hit the thing to the beat, but they're done in this like weirdly hypnotic, like you're at a rave type speed that I couldn't possibly keep up with. And this is a combination of like these rhythmic games plus a kind of racing game. It's by this independent company called Drool. And I find it just completely 
mesmerizing. I suck the same way I suck at everything. And he just laughs at me, but I really <laughs> love playing it. So it's the first one I found that I love. You just got to put in your 10,000 hours, Hannah. Then you'll be great. I God, he's probably put in 50 billion hours on that plus everything else. But um, I really it's we, we really are bonding over Thumper. Anyway, um, OK, my totally normal one for those of you still looking for beach reads, Pachinko. I don't know if anyone oh, yeah. on this podcast has recommended it. Have you guys recommended no, it? Elsewhere? No, but I've been meaning to oh, read it. It's, it's really, really, really great. Like it's a book that I'm reading kind of semi-slowly because I don't want it to end. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's by Korean-American author Min Jin Lee. It's this kind of epic, epic uh, almost old-fashioned novel following these sort of working-class characters from Korea who migrate to Japan, and it's just, I love it. I love it. It's its really just, you can sink into it. I love it. I'm saving that book for my trip to Japan, but I really recommend, I think it was her first novel, Free Food for Millionaires, which is also really great. I really, she's a really good writer. By the way, June, um, the Japanese do not come off well in this novel. So I might like hide it in behind another book (laughs) if you're going to read it publicly in Japan. I'm not sure if it's gotten any like, you know, recognition there, but the Japanese not not looking so good in this novel. It doesn't surprise me. Okay, Noreen. Um, I also have a novel. Um, it's been out for a while, but I think it's just coming out in paperback. Um, it's called Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. Have either of you guys read this? Mm-hmm. Um, no. It's by a really young Irish author, um, and she's writing about even younger people. She's writing about uh, college girls, college women, um, two best friends who had dated when they were in high school, too, and then... Um, they still remain best friends after they break up. They're sort of young literary types in the, in the young literary scene. And one of them um, begins an affair with a guy in his early 30s who is married to um, a writer also in her 30s. And so um, it's sort of, you know, you follow the affair and you follow the tensions between the friends and with the wife. But but what I think is interesting about it is that it um, the, these uh, girls really speak in the language of like young millennials. They, you know, they, and particularly young literary millennials, they, they use all the theory discourse that can be annoying, but it's not because this book sort of illuminates the, the sort of emotion and youth and all the sort of, um, tenderness of, of this sort of age in your life. And I just think it's a really, um, well done book. So Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. Wow. Sounds amazing. All right. Well, that is our show today. Uh, thanks, as always, to our wonderful producer, Verilyn Williams, to our production assistant, Alex Barish. So we have a new Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash The Waves Podcast. Please write us there. Leave us comments. Leave us things that you want us to talk about. Next time on the show, we would love to hear everything you have to say. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah, and we will talk to you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.